Thank you, Terry. I appreciate all those kind words. And all. <laughs> your, uh, I, your flowery remarks have just got me overwhelmed here. I've been introduced a lot worse, but what the heck, it don't really matter. When I tell you that my name is Bob and I'm an alcoholic, then you know a great deal about me. When I tell you that I'm a member in good standing of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know a great deal about me. You know where I've been and you know where I'm trying to go, so that's about all that it takes, I guess. Well, I am an alcoholic, and I'd like to thank the people for asking me to come down here. This is my favorite place to be, a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I, Joe Hubbard, who many of you know, says if you don't have a love affair with Alcoholics Anonymous, you're missing a lot. And I have a love affair with Alcoholics Anonymous. I love alcoholics. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love to go to AA meetings anywhere in any place. And uh, I just enjoy being it. Well, when I got here, we always say the serenity prayer, and God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. I cannot change the fact that I'm an alcoholic. And I knew that the day that I walked in here, and I knew it several years before I got here, and I am very fortunate because I have not debated the fact that I was an alcoholic since the day that I walked in here. Now, I wanted to go back out and take a drink a lot of times, but fortunately, I was willing to pick up the simple tools as they're laid out here, and I have not had a drink since I walked in the door of Alcoholics Anonymous 18 years, four and a half months ago. And for that, I am truly, truly grateful, and I owe it simply to the willingness do what was laid out for me to do. Quite frankly, it was the horrors of alcohol that drove me here, the bad life that drove me here, and it's the good life that Alcoholics Anonymous has given me that makes me want to be here and continue to be here. I know a lot of people that have died very bad deaths, and alcoholism is a bad death to die, but I know one man that died a little bit worse than that, and he was Captain Hook. He'd got this steel hook on his hand, and he died of the jock itch. Now, <laughs> now that's, <laughs> that's a pretty bad way to die, you know. <laughs> and when I first heard that story and I heard about the second step of Alcoholics Anonymous, that the insanity that we talked about was to continue to do the same things over and over again, expect different results, I said, well, Captain Hook must have been an alcoholic. All he had to do was change hands and he lasted a hell of a lot longer than he did. So. <laughs> You know, uh, I, I'm told that, that at any time, at any function, whether it's church, rotary, AA, or whatever it is, that about 75% of the people are sitting there having a sexual fantasy in their own mind rather than listening to what speakers say. So if I'm up here crying and you're out there laughing, I, I know what's going on with you here. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I'm going to do as, as my sponsors have instructed me over the years, and that's try not to give you any advice. I want to do the best I can to share what happened to me and where alcohol took me and where Alcoholics Anonymous has carried me. And I'm here to tell you that there's a vast point between those two places. The longer that I drank, the worse things got. Alcohol turned on me completely. It took away from me everything I thought it had ever given me. And Alcoholics Anonymous has reversed that process. The longer I stayed here, the better things have gotten. Alcoholics Anonymous has never asked me to do anything that did not help me. I may not have thought at that particular moment that it was going to help me. But my journey in Alcoholics Anonymous, in my mind, has been one of success. I'm a firm believer that dreams can come true in Alcoholics Anonymous. And as I go through this process of sharing with you tonight, I think maybe you'll see what I'm talking about. I was born and raised in a little town in Mississippi which had nothing whatsoever to do with my alcoholism in that family or anything else. I was to come to find out 
that people, places, or things may, may have made me what I am, but what I'm to become from this day on is my own responsibility. I could not blame anybody else. I joined the United States Navy at the age of 17 so I could go drink like a man. I'm one of those people that today know that I was an alcoholic from the very first drink that I picked up. I always wanted more, and once I had the first drink, the most important thing to me was the next drink. I got in trouble in the United States Navy, all alcohol-related, three years, nine months, and eight days after leaving to join the Navy. I got out with a slightly less than honorable discharge because of all the confusion I had caused in there, alcohol-related. I got out of the Navy, and I got married almost right away, later to be divorced after 25 and a half years of rampant alcoholism in the family, all on my part to deteriorate and cause a lot of trouble for me and for those around me, as it talks about in the literature. When I got out of the Navy, a very important thing happened. I went to college, and I had to get an education. I, I, I was kind of a halfway farmer, and I didn't want to go back to that. I, I, wanted to, I wanted to get an education and go on and try to better my life. When I was in this school down in South Mississippi, and, and if, you're, if you're in a university town, I want you to hear what I'm saying, please. That school invited the class that I was involved in, the effects of alcohol on the human body was the class, to come to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous as guests. Now, when I went there, I thought, well, you know, a friend of mine and I drove over there, and I thought, well, we're going to see, as most of us thought before having any contact with Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm going to see the people under the table. I'm going to get a lot of laughs out of this and all that confusion of the misconception that most people have of Alcoholics Anonymous unless they've been to an AA meeting and become active in Alcoholics Anonymous. When we got to that meeting that night, there was a lady that grabbed me, called me by name, and reintroduced herself to me. And I thought, well, she must be one of the counselors here. This was 1955. She must be one of the counselors here because she is a rich lady. Well, I was to find out you leave your pride and your pedigree in your pocketbook at the front door because alcohol just really doesn't care who you are. This lady and her husband were good members of Alcoholics Anonymous in good standing in 1955 and had been sober for several years at that time. And I had dated her niece before I went off to join the United States Navy and drank throughout the world. Now, what happened that night, they say if you go to enough meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous that you're going to hear your own story told. Now, what happened to me that night was I was to sit in that audience in a little clubhouse that was celebrating its anniversary, smoke-filled, coffee, laughter, all of the things that go with an AA meeting, and I was completely overwhelmed. Two young men got up and told their stories. They were there from uh, down Mobile, Alabama, up to help them celebrate the anniversary of this little clubhouse. And one of those guys got up, and he told exactly what was to happen to me. I can see the man now. I've never seen him but once, but he told about where alcohol took him. It made him a thief. It made him an egotistical, uncontrollable person trying to live like a big shot by stealing from his family, by having credit in the bars and the liquor stores when he couldn't pay for the medications and the rent and the food needed for his own family. And I thought, how could anybody possibly let something like alcohol control them to the degree that it would cause that much confusion for those people around him. Little did I know that that was the exact path that I was to follow. He talked about right before he would get fired in the high-powered jobs that he had that he would cut out. It was kind of do unto others and cut out is what he would do. And that was to be the pattern that I was to follow. As soon as I got out of college, I got a job in sales. I've been in sales and traveled all my life, and I got in trouble immediately with the first company that I went with. It was a very large soap manufacturing company, and I was in trouble immediately. Well, I knew what to do is you leave. You find a better job. I kind of had this knack of falling up. The worst things got, the further up I went, 
until it was right off to the very bottom, as I'll share with you as I go through here. But I got a better job, real good job, and I was kind of the fair-haired boy within that company, and I went on up into management very fast, was the youngest sales manager in the capacity that they'd ever had, not only in age, but in longevity, and if you don't think there was an ego out of control, it was just blatant. I wanted to live like a big shot, didn't have the money to do it, but that didn't matter. I'd started at that time going on the road living like I wanted to, regardless of what was happening to the families. By that time, there were two kids in the family, I believe. I got in trouble at that company. A friend of mine called me in who was my boss, and he said, Bob, I'm kind of worried about your drinking. He said, I'm kind of worried about you getting too close to some of your accounts. Now, if any of you out there in sales, you already know which accounts I was getting too close to. It was accounts that drank like I did that would overlook my behavior, and I called on them regularly and didn't mess with the rest of them because I was controlled by alcohol without knowing it. So when he gave me that warning, I said, well, I know exactly what to do. I'll change jobs, just exactly like this guy in 1955 had shared. I was on the same pattern. Well, I met a guy in a bar in Bossier City, Louisiana one night, and he had a bigger car than I did. He had a bigger house than I did. So logical conclusion is he's making more money than I am. So I called him and I went to work in the floor covering industry and I stayed in that industry for as long as I could until I was basically barred from it because of my reputation being so bad. So I went to work in the floor covering industry and the company moved me from Dallas, Texas up to Memphis, Tennessee. Got in trouble with alcohol. I would leave, I, I, I would leave home on Sunday sometimes to get out of the house. Anything to get out of the house was my motto, quite frankly. And I would go off and I'd go to a town like Nashville. The gentleman and I were talking about this a little bit earlier. And I would check in that motel and I would promise myself that this time, this week, things are going to be different. I'm going to get out of here and work and I'm going to pay my way and I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. Five days later, I would leave without having made a single business call and stay drunk and had a good time and live like a big shot money that I was actually stealing from the family at that time. And of course, that didn't last very long. It deteriorated. I was in trouble with that company. So what do you do? You get another job, right? I was very active in the church. I was a deacon in the church. <laughs> the church that I was in served communion every Sunday. Now, you're sitting there with a hangover, and they pass this big tray with all these little things of juice in them, and you're trying to get one out, and you can't, and you know everybody in that place is looking at you. It gets a little bit confusing in your life. But I was very remorse. Things were falling apart. Nobody loved me anymore, I thought. Of course, my family did. They put up with a lot. God bless them. I went to that church one morning, and I went into the sanctuary, and I prayed, God, help me to find a better job, and I will quit drinking. And the little voice said, now, Bob, you mean you're just going to cut back, don't you? <laughs> and I would say, that's what I mean. I'm just going to cut back. But God, if you'll just get me a job, I was bargaining with God. I wasn't willing to do my part. I was bargaining with God. Well, the Monday morning following that, I left, or, or that afternoon it was, I left and I went to Atlanta, and I stayed in Atlanta for five nights, got drunk every night, never called on anybody to see about getting a job, and that was the, where all the carpet industry is, is in that town. Went back home. The following Monday, I got a telephone call from a friend of mine who is now in this program, and he says, Bob, I heard you were looking for a job. I said, well, Nick, where'd you hear that? He said, well, I had some bartender <laughs> down, down at such and such club told me you were over here looking for a job. He says, we got a place in Denver for you, and you can come to work with us. It was the largest, most successful manufacturer in the industry at that time, a very lucrative job, too much money. I couldn't handle it. 
I went out to Denver, Colorado with my family, and a funny thing happened on the way to Colorado. The guy that I had to work with out there who was my largest customer was a guy named Ralph Kay, and he had 18 years sobriety in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous at that time. He died with slightly less than 40 years. God rest his soul. He was exactly what the big book said. There was no, there was no promotion. It was attraction. He was staying sober, doing the same work that I was to be doing. He was doing it better than I was doing it. He was not having all the problems that I was generating. It says in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, were we not manufacturers of misery? And I had become a professional manufacturer of misery, I promise you. And I didn't know how to stop it. You see, I'm an alcoholic, and it's either take no drinks or drink alcoholically. And there's nothing in between those two points for me. And I know that, as I said, with every fiber I got, and I don't debate that. Again, I said I did debate whether staying or not, but thank God I haven't had a drink since I came here, and I think that's important. My wife will be picking up 17 years in this fellowship on Sunday, and she has not had a drink since she came to Alcoholics Anonymous. And we both share because we feel that we've been picked up the tools that are laid out here for us to be willing to follow the instructions. I bring that point up emphatically because I heard a girl about four weeks ago say, when do I have to have my slip? About eight weeks ago, I heard one say, how many slips do I have to have before I'm going to be accepted in Alcoholics Anonymous? It's quite fashionable not to drink in here, people. <laughs> they'll even like you if you drink, but they'll like you better, I promise you, if you don't drink. Now, what, what was to happen in Colorado, I, it had no influence on me of this gentleman that I had to work with other than he was staying sober and he was a picture of the big book. And he'd give me a little dig every once in a while. He knew that I was in serious trouble. He got fired from that company, so that made me in better standing because of his doing some talking about my drinking. And God bless him. We've shared a lot of times since I used to call him every Christmas and thank him for staying sober and being a picture of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous for me to see, to know that I didn't have to drink. But I wasn't quite willing to stop at that time. Got in trouble in Colorado, alcohol. A friend of mine in Los Angeles with the same company that I was with called me and he said, Bob, I want you to move uh, to Los Angeles. Same company now. Most lucrative position in the company in the field, and that's where I was in the field. And I said, God, you're good to me. I'm going to go out there, and this time I'm not going to drink. And the little voice would say, well, maybe I'll cut back, but I can't cut back. And you know that, and I know that. So I got out to California, and things were good. And uh, this guy that had called me out there wanted a drinking buddy was what he wanted, because he and I drank together. I got this guy fired, and he was my boss. He wound up in Alcoholics Anonymous five years before I did. <laughs> so it, it worked out good for all of us. Coming down to the end of this drunkologue type thing, it's important for me to refresh this in my mind because the book of Alcoholics Anonymous says it's important that we share all most of the point of reliving it so people will know that you can get out of the horrors of alcoholism. When I first got sober, I went to as many speaker meetings as I could go to, and the most horrible things you had been through, the more hope I found. If you had been institutionalized 50, 60 times, I said, if he can do it, I can do it. So it gave me hope here in those stories. Uh, what happened in, in California, as I said, I got in trouble again out there, still with the same company. I'll give you briefly a, a little episode of one day in my life. I left home at 11 o'clock in the morning to go have one martini, right? And I had uh, several martinis, and I went, it went to leave this place that I was in, and I hit a brand-new Cadillac in the parking lot. So I went into, <laughs> went into the bartender, who I knew very well, and I said, Stretch, I have hit a car out here in this parking lot, and I want to do the right thing. 
never mind, I'm stealing, I'm supposed to be working and all this other stuff. I want to do the right thing. So Stretch asked, and his two big old boys come out there. And we walked out there and looked at that car, and we talked back and forth, and we mumbled. And I finally said, how much is your deductible on this thing? He said, $100. I said, well, I'll give you $100 if you buy me a drink. So we took that $100, went back in, and I must have got $50 of that 100 back by drinking in there. you know. So then I left. I got in downtown Newport Beach. I only had four miles to go, and I hit a car. Two o'clock or so in the afternoon. I don't know, you know. And some legal eagle beagle in a bar one night gave me some very sound advice. If you hit somebody and you're drunk, you might as well leave. <laughs> and I remember that. Never heard all these people say you need to stop drinking and clean up your act. But what I heard was, you know, if you hit somebody and you're drunk, you might as well leave. So I backed around these people and left. You know, broad daylight right here downtown Newport Beach. And of course, they saw the name tag and the people showed up and I went through all that stuff. But I got up on the beach road. Gonna make it home now. You know, the one eye to holding on to everything. And I tail in a van. <laughs> I hit a van. Now, when that van opened up, the hippies were, were in, in style out there at that time. And there must have been 25 or 30 of them come out of the back of that van. <laughs> And I thought, oh, God, I'm in for it now. They're going to kill me. But there was enough marijuana smoke coming out of that band to get that whole beach high, and they was in a hurry to get out of there, too. They didn't want to stay either. <laughs> so they cut out, and I cut out, and I finally got home. A friend of mine called me from Atlanta. And he, uh, keep in mind, I'm still in California with the family. And he says, Bob, uh, they think you've got some problems out there. <laughs> they're going to bring you to Atlanta. So they can look at you. Well, my thought was at that time, okay, if they're going to catch me now, I'm over there where everybody is and it won't be hard for me to get a job. Keep in mind, I kept falling up. But I couldn't handle the success. I couldn't handle the money coming in. What I would do is whatever amount came in, I spent about twice that amount thinking it's always going to be this way. And that was not the case. Because if you don't work, for some reason or the other, they don't like that. You know, they want you to work. And that's what they give you a check for. So I moved over here to Atlanta. I had to commute for four months from California <laughs> to Atlanta. They allowed you to fly first class and all that stuff, you know. And you're talking about a basket case for four months. It was very little accomplished. And they kept saying, well, as soon as his family gets over here, he's straight now. But I'm an alcoholic, and the family ain't going to straighten me out. Now, what happened was when, the, when they came over, I had been working there about nine months, and I had what was diagnosed as a, some heart problems, and I went into the hospital with, with what was diagnosed as a heart attack. And I, this is funny, I, I, I quit smoking 40 years ago on my own with no help, with no help. Well, I had a little help. Beer was 35 cents and so were cigarettes. And I figured if <laughs> two packs of cigarettes meant two more beers, so it made good sense to quit. And that's the help I had to quit smoking. But when I had this heart problem, I, they put me on a diet and I lost 48 pounds and never gained it back. Did that, you know, just did it. But I couldn't quit drinking. Once I had one drink, the most important thing was the next drink and the next and on and on. But a wonderful thing happened on the way to Alcoholics Anonymous. They called me in and they thought, well, he's got this heart problem now. Surely he'll clean up his act. Now, they don't know anything about alcoholism, right? Because that never stopped me. They promoted me and made me vice president in charge of entertaining everybody that came into the city of Atlanta with that company. And there would be sometimes three, four hundred people that I would be signing the checks for and having the band play and all of this stuff, you know, just wonderful living. <laughs> but boy, was it getting close and hot and they kept saying, well, you do so good in the daytime, but you're so bad at night. And finally that got where you were so bad in the daytime and so bad at night. So they called me in, they out and out fired me. There was no rationalization at that time. 
I thought, well, I know everybody in this industry that's of any importance at all, and I won't have any trouble getting a job. Well, I didn't know a lot of people, and they knew me. They knew me as a non-productive drunk. That's what my reputation was. And I didn't know it, but I was not only unemployed, but I was unemployable. I couldn't get that job that I thought I would have no trouble. It was 1974 when they let me go. The economy was not in that good of shape, so I could hang my rationalizer on that a little bit. But it was 10 months before I was able to get a job. 10 months I was unemployed. Seven of those months, I continued to drink like a big shot. You would have thought I had no problems. You would have thought I had multitudes of money because I was spending up everything that we had saved. I was stealing from the family when they needed to pay the house note. They needed money for education. They needed money for medications, and they needed money for food. So I had become exactly what I heard in 1955 in that little university town when we visited Alcoholics Anonymous. And that was exactly what happened to me. And what happened on May the 22nd, a friend of mine, four days prior to that, from Louisville, Mississippi, had come over, and we went out and got drunk for four days. And when he went to leave, I borrowed $1,000 from him with no intention of paying him back. Alcohol had made me an out-and-out thief. There was no justifying. There was no rationalizing. There was nothing left in there. I think one of the purposes of Alcoholics Anonymous is to keep my rationalizer broke so I can no longer justify bad behavior. And I was a professional at justifying bad behavior. Well, I did pay the, did pay the guy back. When he left, I checked into a motel with that $1,000, and I came out of there four days later, and I'd spent like $680 of that 1000 Keep in mind, I was about to lose the house and everything else. I came out of there on May the 22nd, 1975, and I went home. I was not welcome, but I went home. I did not get to sleep in the same bedroom with the lady that I was married to at that time. They put me in another room, and I didn't know this, but I was right on the verge of going to DTs. I was itching. I was scratching. I thought in my sick mind, now that gal has put soap powder under these sheets to get back at me, you know, and that was not the case. I was right on the verge of going into DTs and didn't know it. Four days, I walked, I sweated, I didn't know anything about treatment centers, I didn't know anything about detoxes or anything else, but man, I hurt. Now, I called Alcoholics Anonymous on a, on a Friday, and they told me where there was a meeting, and I didn't know where that was, so I said, well, I ain't going to go try to find that. Quite frankly, I was too shaky to drive, and I wasn't going to tell anybody where I was going. I said, then, well, they don't meet on Saturday and Sunday, I'm sure, you know, nobody's going to meet on Saturday and Sunday, so I had no need to call them then. But on Monday, I called them. That was May the 26th. I hadn't had a drink since May 22nd, 1975. This was the 26th, four days. And they told me where there was a meeting, and I knew where that church was. It was Mount Vernon Group in, in Atlanta. Meets at 8.30 on a Monday night and 8 o'clock on Thursday night. I think it's Bill's home group now. It was my home group to start with. I went over there, and I drove past that church, and I drove past that church, and I drove past that church, and I thought, well, maybe there won't be anybody there. <laughs> And I walked in right at 8.30, man, and there was one seat left. And I sat down in that seat at 8.30 exactly, and they went through the readings. And a guy got up to tell his story. He'd been sober for five years, if I remember correctly. And as he started telling his story for about 20 minutes, I went right with him. I had done those things that he had done. I had felt like he had felt, lied, cheated, stolen, all these things that this man had done. Then he went off and left me. He did things that I had never done. 
And I'm grateful to God at that moment, that moment when he went off and did things that I had never done that I thought to myself, if I don't stop drinking, that's what's going to happen to me. Not I don't belong here because I haven't done that yet, but that moment. It says, you know, we stood at the turning point and we asked his protection and care with, love, with complete abandon. That's what it was at that moment. Was God getting in my life? And the little sign up there said, but for the grace of God, you know. So I said, Carver, maybe you better listen. Now, what this man had done, he got so drunk till he had his wife down, had a pistol through her head, and couldn't get the gun off of safety because he was so drunk, and that's the only thing that kept him from blowing his wife's brains out. Came to Alcoholics Anonymous, he got sober, he got in the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he was sharing at the end of that meeting about growing roses and participating in flower shows. And I thought, my God, if there's enough power in here to take this man from trying to murder somebody to be involved in flower shows, I need to be here. I need some of this. <laughs> I haven't grown any flowers yet. <laughs> Well, what happened now, when that meeting was over, a little old short stubby guy named Al Dupree, God bless his soul, he is dead, he's gone to the big meeting in the sky. But Al looked at me and he said, are you new? <laughs> and I said, yes, sir, I am. He said, well, would you like to talk a little bit? I said, yes, I would. I, I, I believe I need some help. So he told me some things that night that have not changed. But the most important thing he said to me, he said, Bob, why don't you just give this thing all you got for three months? And if you don't like it, you can have all that misery back. My self-respect was gone. And I thought at the moment he said that, that if I don't give this thing a shot one day at a time for the three months that he's talking about, I'm a heck of a lot sorrier than I think, and I don't think I could have thought much less of myself at that time. So that was the key word. But they also told me some things about just one day at a time that we do this. That hasn't changed. Whatever it is, drinking, character defects, whatever. Just one day at a time. He also told me about getting honest and open-minded and willing. And I could hear these things because I saw the proof. Al called me when I was 30 days sober, and he says, Come on, I want you to go on a 12-step call with me. And Dick is sitting over there. I was 30 days sober, and we went out to get him. Had no tea. <laughs> and he wouldn't go with us. He wouldn't go with us. He was married to a lovely little lady at that time. The next night, he was in Peachford Hospital up there. She got him in there where we couldn't get him in there. But he hadn't had a drink since that day either. So the first 12-step call, well, I ran into him tonight here, which I haven't seen him in a while. So what Al did for me was to get me active in Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, as I said, I never went through a treatment center, and, and I don't know if that's an advantage or a disadvantage. I don't know one way or the other. That just happens to be my story. I heard somebody say that it makes it harder if you hadn't. So I thought, well, that's good. I can do it if it's harder. You know, that's right down my line, man. I, I can handle this. But he drove me out to Peaceford one day, and he said, come on, I'll show you something. We went out there, and he took me to this padded cell. And he said, that's where you wind up, you know, if you don't keep your act clean, <laughs> it's in this padded cell. Well, it made an impression on me, but I wanted to drink, but I didn't drink. Oh, God, I wanted to drink, and I still didn't have a job, and the finances were in terrible shape. It was just going to pieces, man. I found out that I was eligible for food stamps. Big home in Dunwoody now, you know. <laughs> Big four-door Electra Buick, man, you know, hard top, windows come down, two-tone, all that nice stuff, and I was eligible for food stamp. Here's a guy that had been vice president, the largest manufacturer in the industry at that time, and now I was eligible for food stamps. The lady that I was married to at that time, who said later we got divorced, uh, she had taken a job to bring in some money, and I said, well, I'll go get the food stamps. I got in that big Buick Electra, and I drove down there. 
and God, we needed these things. So it, it was tough around there, folks. I'm not kidding you, man. And <laughs> I drove down there, and I got out of that car, and I walked into the food stamp place, and I was the only male there. All the rest of them were ladies with babies and everything, and I couldn't bring myself to do it. The ego, the pride would not let me do it. By the time I got back, I asked where the bathroom was, <laughs> and I left. And time I got to my car, I was crying. I was crying. I was probably two months sober. I, I don't know, but I was crying. Thank God for the daytime meetings. The Nava Club had a daytime meeting. So I went down there. Anybody got any problems? <laughs> yeah. And I shared that story, and everybody laughed. And it wasn't so bad anymore. You see, it's my belief that, that relief is just a sharing away. It just wasn't so bad anymore. About four or five days later, I got a letter. I had made a loan application for my son to go to college, and I thought, well, if anything's going to come out of all this misery and bad debt, at least he'll get that loan application to go to school. And I got this letter one morning. I'm home by myself, feeling sorry for myself, as great as I could put forth, just me there and nobody to cry on. I got this letter. I was six months behind in my house note. The only reason they wasn't taking my car is it was paid for. They was fixing to disconnect everything. Oh, to everybody. Credit cards were gone, the whole thing, lock, stock, and barrel. This letter says, Mr. Carver, we're sorry that we cannot extend you a loan because you're making too much money. <laughs> I thought, well, the poor boy, he's going to reap the downside of this thing. So I went to Naba, shared it. We laughed, and it just wasn't quite so bad anymore. We have a very good friend that's going through breast cancer. When she first got the news, this is the power of Alcoholics Anonymous. When she first got the news, she came, she's a school teacher. She came over to the daytime meeting. And she went to share the diagnosis, and, and she was just in tears. About five days later, she came back, and she shared, and she didn't cry quite so much. Two or three days later, she came back, not quite so much. Saturday, about two weeks ago, she came, and somebody called on her, and she said, Well, all of you know I'm going through breast cancer. And said, I've heard people around here time and time again say, You don't drink even if your tail falls off. And she says, What I have decided is I ain't going to drink even my boob falls off. <laughs> now, this lady couldn't share it. The power of it got her to where she could joke about it. Well, what happened in Alcoholics Anonymous was a, was a great, great thing for me. I'm going to run over just a minute or two here, probably. When I take this watch off, it's kind of like a Baptist minister. It doesn't really mean a lot, but I'll try to do the best I can before the music starts. Ah, we're going to make it in plenty of time. So, three months had gone by. And things were caving in. Now, the same guy that had loaned me the $1,000 had called and offered me a job. I had to go to Houston, Texas to do it. And he told me on the front end, Bob, there's some dishonesty involved in it. You've got to do some payoffs and all this. And I thought, well, they told me at Alcoholics Anonymous I can't do that and stay sober. They told me that sobriety had become the most important thing in my life. And I like the way that Burt Davis, who founded the Harbor House over in Memphis, Tennessee, and died after many years of sobriety, puts it. He says, if you don't put your alcoholism first in your life, it'll put itself first in your life, whether you like it or not. One way or the other. And he says, you know, putting on your pants every morning ain't the most important thing in the world, but you ought to do it before you walk out the door. And you ought to put your sobriety on before you walk out the door. So they told me it was the most important thing in life. Still wanted to drink. Got up on a Monday morning. I don't know how many resumes I had sent out and how many people I had talked to and, and, and here not sober enough really in my mind to put it all together. I got up on that Monday morning and couldn't sleep and I went down. I made some coffee and my youngest daughter came down. Before she got there, I got down on my knees and did not bargain to God. I said, God, I need some help. Things are falling in. 
I've got to have some financial help. I, I just got to do it. If I'm to take this job that's illegal, then I just got to seek some kind of sign. You know? Took my daughter to school and came back at five minutes after nine, the telephone rang. And the guy said, Bob, we want you to go to work for us. Didn't even know who the company was. I'd interviewed with so many people. I said, well, I, I, good, I'll, I'll take it. I tried to ego protect myself as much as I could. Now, I want you to know that it was making 66 and two-thirds less than when I was a big shot. Less than. I had to pay my dues, folks. Bert Davis says, sooner or later, you got to sit down to a meal of consequences. And I had to sit down to a meal of consequences of my past behavior and start over again one day at a time. One day at a time. And the money, I was ashamed to tell anybody what I was making, you know. I had to tell my wife, but I was kind of ashamed of it, quite frankly. But I needed the job, and I needed to prove to myself that I could go on the road and travel without drinking alcohol. Fortunately, it was a very expensive product. It was so expensive that very, very few people could afford it. I didn't have to do any entertaining. I was told when you get out there on the road, go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's out there, Bob. It's your responsibility to go. And I went to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous all over the Southeast. I kind of had this ritual. As soon as I get to the motel, instead of going to bar, I'd look up Alcoholics Anonymous and I'd call them and I'd write down where the meeting was. And I said, now, Bob, it's your responsibility. You can't blame anybody else. And somebody would say, well, how far was it? I said, well, it was like eight miles or so. And they said, heck, you used to go that far for ice, you know, which was probably right. <laughs> so I went to AA all over. I met a lovely lot of people clubhouses. There were some clubhouses, one called the Yana Club. There's several Yana Clubs throughout the country, Y-A-N-A, and it stands for You Are Never Alone. And, and we know the loneliness. Jim Pippin, God rest his soul, died of many years sobriety. You say if somebody talked to their story and don't talk about loneliness, he probably hadn't told all of it. And you know what I'm talking about when I talk about the loneliness of alcoholism. Now, what happened I, I got that little job, and I went out there, and I started traveling, and man, I'd want to drink. Oh, God, I would want to drink. And they'd say, well, go to meeting first and see how you feel. Go to meeting, and it would go away. Says, if you want what we got, you got to be willing to do what we did, and here's what it is, and it was 1 through 12, and those good things that we all hear at every meeting that we go to, to simply follow the instructions as they're laid out there. Now, Funny thing happened when I was six months sober. A friend of mine in the industry called me, in the industry that I was basically barred from, an old drinking buddy, and he says, Bob, heard you sober. He says, we want you to go to work for us. Like a 50% raise right immediately. Went to work for him. Stayed there 15 years and retired of my own accord. Says in the literature that if I base my life on honesty and morality, I'm more likely to get what I want. And that's what my experience was. I didn't think I could sell without lying, cheating, and stealing, and that was not the case. But it was new ground for me. I had to try to see if it would work. And it did work, because Alcoholics Anonymous says, try to tell the truth. If you don't tell the truth, get involved in a tenth step and go straighten out all that mess. So it worked for me. I got promoted. I went up into, into management. With that was offered another promotion. And boy, this was unbelievable. Turned it down. I was going with a lovely lady sitting on this front row. I was divorced by this time. I met her when I was four years sober and she was three years sober. I have never yet had to tell her that I've been sober longer than she has. <laughs> Sometimes she probably should say to me, you've been sober longer than me, you ought not behave like that. You know, probably. But I, I didn't want to leave Atlanta. I didn't want to leave the Alcoholics Anonymous that I had come accustomed to. I didn't want to start over again. The sobriety had to be the most important thing in my life and the ego and the pride wanted me to go. 
and start over again. And I knew a lot of people up there. And I knew Alcoholics Anonymous was up there in Richmond, Virginia, and good and growing and everything else. But I just wanted to stay where I was and do what I was doing. Now, as time went on with this company, a lot of good things happened to me. Uh, my wife and I have been to meetings in five continents now. Five meetings of alcohol, I mean, meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous in five continents. What I always wanted to do was travel, to go to all these exotic places that I always read and heard about. Some of you may remember that old song, I'm going to China, or maybe to Siam. I want to see for myself. And that always hung with me, and that's one of the reasons I joined the Navy, so I could go off and see these places. But my most primary concern when I was out seeing these places when I was in the service was where was my next strength going to come from? A guide in Istanbul, Turkey, told me one night, I was 18 years old, he says, Bob, you can get drunk anywhere in the world, but you can't see Istanbul, Turkey, unless you're in Istanbul, Turkey. Now, what it made me do was go take these tours to see these places, but still, my mind was preoccupied with when are we going to get to the booze? Now, when, when my wife, Sam, and I went to all these countries, that was not it. Going to the AA meetings was the highlight of all of these places that we've been. We've been to meetings with people that Maury down in New Zealand, the Aborigines out in Australia. We even been to meeting with some Baptists, you know. And <laughs> she had to tell me that one. But there was Buddhists and there was Muslims and it was just all kind of people. And, and we were just have been so fortunate to go so many places and do so many things. We spent two, uh, two weeks, two and a half weeks in, in communist China, uh, December and January, and just had a marvel, just the two of us. And Two billion Chinese, man. We had a ball. We just had a good time. Right by ourselves, no group. Just she and I and a guide when we had a guide. And we just had a ball. And China was the only place we did not get to go to an AA meeting because we just couldn't find anybody. We had four numbers and couldn't get anybody to answer. When we got back down to Hong Kong, they told us that it was quite secretive in communist China. And, and people didn't go around telling. It was not listed in any way or anything. But we were there together with God. And in my mind, we had a meeting in, in China because of her being there and my being there together. I was so blessed to find this lovely lady. As I said, we started going together when I was four years sober and she was three. We dated off and on, she tells me. <laughs> I didn't ever know this, but it was off and on. <laughs> I, I guess I was traveling enough till it, it, maybe she was, you know, time I got home, it was, it was glad to see me again. Well, things kept getting better for us and getting better for us in our relationship, and we were going to move in together, and we both went to our sponsors. Sponsors are good people and nice people. Doc Crandall, Bill's former sponsor, was my sponsor. Bill's your speaker tomorrow night. And and I went to Doc, and he didn't like that idea at all, and she, Sam went to her sponsor, and she didn't like that idea at all, so we postponed that. A year later, we did move in together and live in sin. <laughs> but we were going to try it to see how it worked, and if it worked, we were going to go a little bit further. Well, April 15, 1985, we got married. And we've been married ever since. And I want to tell you now, very, very seldom is there any discontent in our household. Very, very seldom. And most time when it is, it's my fault. <laughs> Isn't that big of me to say that? <laughs> it, it's my fault because I get a little itchy, like coming over. I want to hurry, you know, and I'm not as polite. It talks about courtesy and kindness and justice in the, in the literature. And it says if we can practice these things, we can come into harmony with practically anybody. Well, there's a lot of courtesy in our house, a lot of kindness, a lot of please, a lot of thank you, a lot of hugging, and a tremendous amount of tent stepping. A tremendous amount of tent stepping. Because if I'm back in the back of there and I'm pouting about something, I know it's time for me to go up and put my arms around this lady and tell her how much I love her. And it just kind of goes all the way. Relief is just a sharing away. When I was one year sober, Al Dupree, God bless his heart, gave me the book Alcoholics Anonymous Comes of Age, and it had a turning point in my life. 
my gratitude expounded when I read about the history and the founding fathers of this thing. I've always been a history buff. And I saw all the trouble that they went through to get these meetings put together, trials and the tribulations, and it's a wonder. A friend of mine who is very highly educated with 9,000 DDTs or PhDs or whatever they are, you know, he says, I don't know how they wrote this book. They sure didn't know that much about alcoholism in those days, but it's there. And, and for me, the first 164 pages of that book, plus the stories and plus all the other good literature, 12 and 12, are what I hang my hat on. Now, that, that book helped me. And here again, now, I was traveling, going to a lot of AA meetings. I was sober, I think, about 14 months. I'm not sure. Thank God it's so long ago, I can't remember all of it. Uh, I was sober about 14 months, and I left Denver, Colorado, flying by myself. And flew into a border town on Texas, on the border of Mexico and Texas. And the sick thinking set in. Hadn't done a fourth step yet. I'm going to bring that point up because the sick thinking set in. It says on page 43 of the book, and you read it many times, I'm sure that sometimes something's going to have to come between you and a drink. There's got to be a power greater than yourself. When I landed in that airport, I wanted to go to Mexico so bad because of all the hell raising I'd done down there drinking over the years, particularly when I was 17 years old in California, and you couldn't drink in California, but you could go into Mexico. Got off of the plane. I think it was like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I got my rental car, and I went to the motel, and I called Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, what they said was there's a little clubhouse about 30 blocks from you. Go on down there, and it's a little frame house. I went down there. And it was a little frame house. And I walked to the door, and there was one of these screens that are so deteriorated that you can't see through them, you know. And I opened that door, and the smell of ammonia just came reaping out of that little clubhouse. And a lady up in her 80s got up off of the floor, put her scrubbing brush back in the pot of ammonia, and walked out to the front porch and says, How you doing? I said, well, I, I don't know. You know, the ego wouldn't let me tell her what was really going on. And she said, well, let's sit down here and talk a minute. And we talked. And the desire to drink went away. She later went back on in the little clubhouse. Some other people came up. And come to find out that this lady had just taken over as custodian that morning of that little clubhouse. And she wanted it to be the cleanest clubhouse in West Texas. So what she was doing was getting the used wax off of the tile floor in that little clubhouse. Now, that within itself is important, that she's that dedicated to do something that most of us wouldn't even notice or think about. But this lady in her past, I don't know if you've ever been to Newport, Rhode Island, but as you come down the coast, there's a string of mansions, the Kennedys, the DuPonts. All of these people have got tremendous mansions up there. This lady had drunk herself out of the top 100 society and lived in one of those mansions. Maids, servants, you name it. And here she was. On that floor, scrubbing it to make it the best clubhouse in West Texas. Now, I've never seen that lady since, but I've been deep into Mexico many, many times since then. And that lady has become part of the we can do what I couldn't do. Just as Alcoholics Anonymous comes of age had put Bill Wilson and Abby Thatcher and all of these other people, Dr. Bob, of course, as part of the we can do what I couldn't do. And that lady became part of the we. Whenever I thought about drinking, I would think about that little lady. Now, here again, wanted to drink. Still. Still hadn't done the fourth step. Jim Pippin used to introduce himself, and he'd say, I'm a garden variety alcoholic. I said, Jim, what do you mean? He says, there ain't no double standards in here, Bob. You're going to have to do it if you want it. 
And it ain't numbered 1 and 12. It's numbered 1 through 12, just like it talks about in the 12 and 12 when it talks about two-stepping, and two-stepping was what I was doing. I thought it just didn't apply to me because I was different. I was different. Well, I wanted to stay sober. I liked what was happening. And I thought I'm going to have to do this stuff. So I did the fourth step, and I did the fifth step. I backed up to the first step first and took a long look at it because, as I said, I knew I was an alcoholic, and I knew my life was unmanageable. And the second step simply told me that if I knew the horrors that I had been through and the way alcohol treated me and the way alcohol made me treat those around me, becoming a thief and all this other stuff, why pick up a drink? Well, the second step simply became the insanity to pick up the first drink, knowing where it's going to lead me. And all it told me was I needed some help. Third step told me where the help was going to come from. God is I understand God. And thank God for that God is I understand God because I fell in love with that statement the first time I heard it. And it told me when to do these things. I went to meeting Bill Huffine at the Mount Vernon group. I led the first discussion I ever led. When I was four months sober, I said, when do you take the fourth step? And he said, as soon as you want to start getting well. <laughs> Haunted me, man, for 14 more months before I, as soon as I wanted to start getting well. But I wanted to start getting well. So I did the fourth and fifth step. Now, the good news to me was the sixth and seventh step after doing that was to try one day at a time to stop doing those things that I had been doing. I heard Father Martin talk one time, and he says, a lot of people, and I was guilty of this, things go wrong for them, so they go take another fourth and fifth step. Two months later, things go wrong, they go take another fourth and fifth step, and on and on and on. And he says, don't hide in the fourth and fifth step. It don't say, and now we rest. One place it says, we rest in preparation for the next step. So step six meant to me, are you ready to stop doing this stuff that's wrong with you? And the answer was yes. And how was I going to do it? It came to me that with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous and the one day at a time, I couldn't think about being honest and kind and tolerant and patient and all this stuff for the rest of my life. But I could one day at a time try to give it a shot on being honest and kind and patient and tolerant and this other stuff with the help of God and going to step study groups and big book study groups where they talked about recovery and Alcoholics Anonymous. And all of a sudden I had this desire to be a better person. And I think that's basically what most of us are here doing, is trying to be a better person. And it says that in the literature. What it's asking us to do is trying to build a better character of ourselves. And simply by finding out what was wrong with me was not enough. When I stopped doing it, tried to, and thank God for the tenth step, so when I get back in there, I can come straighten it out promptly, promptly. I used to carry a card that says, after all else fails, follow the instructions. Now, what happened was, when I got into six and seven steps seriously, I changed that card to read before all else fails, follow the instructions. If I stop doing all that stuff, I'm going to stop manufacturing all this misery. And I ain't perfect on it. I know that. The purpose of those two steps to me is to get the character defects where I can control them rather than them controlling me. One day at a time. And they said, Bob, you better go on with eight and nine if you want all these good things to happen to you. I come to find out that the people that I had harmed had a great deal to do with my recovery. And until I dealt with those people, part of me was still out there in untreated alcoholism. So I had to deal with these people. I had to put them all on there, living or dead. When Jean shared this afternoon, she talked about going to the graveside. That's what I had to do with my father. That's what later I had to do with my son. And I'll share that with you in just a minute before I close up here. It told me I better stay active in this thing, that you don't get, uh, you know, that you're not immune. you got five years, you're not immune. you got 18 years, you're not immune. There's nothing you're going to do to make you immune of alcoholism. You can get busy. You can get too busy, Bob. You can get too tired. You can get too drunk. So I heard those things. And that hunger, anger, lonely, and tired just doesn't go away based on my experience. I don't know about you, but on my experience, my thinking just doesn't get right if I got one of those involved in my life. And it told me to stay in that tenth step one day at a time when I've done something wrong to promptly admit it. 
Now, these steps carry me back to each other. I go into step 11, and it tells me to try to improve my situation to get in better contact with God through prayer and meditation. If I'm not doing that, i got to go back to 6 and 7 and start fixing this stuff again. Now, my big question was in this program, what's God's will for me? And when finally, through persistence in study groups and getting into this, it dawned on me, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, I'm supposed to have a spiritual awakening through these steps as a byproduct of doing them. I'm supposed to carry the message, and God's will was for me to practice these principles in all my affairs, and it was very simple. Hard to do, says easy, does hard. But I try it one day at a time. When I started doing those things, I got better with myself. My wife and I's relationship got better. Everything got better. Restored the relationship with my kids. Said feuds of long standing will fall by the wayside, and that has been my experience. It says the best years of your existence lie ahead of you, and that has been my experience. I believe, as I said, that dreams come true in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was in California visiting my two daughters, and I received a phone call. It was December 19, 1983. And like the lady who shared about her cancer operation, I was to know the depth of the power of Alcoholics Anonymous. The phone call was that my son had been murdered. He was 26 years old. He was killed in the living room of his own apartment. They had tried to strangle him with chocks to break down his throat mechanism, so to speak. When that didn't work, they bashed his head in, and he died. And his mother and I, as I said, were divorced by that time, and I was in California, and I got the call, so we got in touch with everybody together. And as the lady this afternoon shared, when she buried two people under the influence of alcohol, it was not a good situation. A friend of mine, after I shared this at the Veterans Administration Hospital one night, came up to me after the meeting. He said, Bob, I'm glad you told that story about how you conducted yourself with your son. He said, I won't tell you what happened to me. He said, my son was killed, still married to his mother, took my girlfriend to the funeral, both of us drunk. Now, that's the difference between alcohol and Alcoholics Anonymous. Today, I'm willing to try one day at a time to do my part. Now, what happened was, I came back to Atlanta. It was over the holidays, as I said. They did not want to release this boy's body until the police were through with it. His mother wanted him buried down in South Mississippi, so they shipped the body to New Orleans and carried it up there. I came home to be with Sam and then went on to New Orleans to go to participate in, in what I had to participate in. Power of Alcoholics Anonymous was with me. When I came back to Atlanta, the outreach of the fellowship was overwhelming. The first meeting that I went to when I got back, Sam and I went to our home group, and Jim Cleveland, God rest his soul, the big meeting in the sky now, was leading the discussion. And about halfway in the meeting, Jim looked at me and he said, Bob, would you like to share? And I was so emotional till I couldn't say anything. Now, I knew I had to break the ice, not only to get me off of the spot, but to get everybody else kind of at ease, because everybody's trying to do what's right in an adverse situation. And so right as the meeting went to end, Jim looked at me again. And I raised my hand. Now, this is not what I intended to say, but this is what I said. And where it came from, to me, was God and Alcoholics Anonymous and the experiences that I found here. And all I could say was, I cannot muster any anger. And one that was quick to anger, still quick to anger, could not muster any anger over the most devastating situation that has ever happened in my life. Now, what I was to find out, and I wrote it down here. I was to learn that pain makes me bitter or better. 
And which it makes me depends on my closeness to God as I understand God. And I had never been closer to God in my life than I was through that horrible tragedy. I was there to be of assistance to his mother, my ex-wife. I was there to be assistance to my two daughters and to do my part in, in going through this tragic thing. Now, when I was to leave here to go to New Orleans, to go up to this little Mississippi town, the ex-mother-in-law and I were not on very good terms. And this lady had quite a knack of causing disturbances. And I knew I was going into a lion's den. And I didn't know what to do. December the 23rd, in the little black book, 24-hour book, as I said, this was over Christmas time. And this was the day before I was to leave or whatever. I don't really remember. But here's what it said in the 24-hour book on December the 23rd in the meditation for the day. It told me exactly how to conduct myself in adverse conditions. It said, shed peace, not discord, wherever you go. Try to be part of the cure of every situation, not part of the problem. Try to ignore evil rather than to actively combat it. Always try to build up, never to tear down. Show by others your example that happiness comes from living the right way. The power of your example is greater than the power of what you say. And a little short prayer that day. I pray that I may try to bring something good into every situation today. I pray that I may be constructive in the way I think, speak, and act today. I went into that adverse situation under the influence of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I did my part. And I felt good about it. You know, it dawned on me when it was over that I hadn't thought about drinking one way or the other. It says in the literature, we'll cease fighting anything or anyone. We'll stay that way as long as we're spiritually fit. And what I did was get my spirituality in line to do what I was supposed to do as a responsible father. Not only of the son that was killed, but of the, the two daughters as well. I think in saying what about Alcoholics Anonymous, and you've heard it many, many times, I thank God for giving me Alcoholics Anonymous, and I thank Alcoholics Anonymous for giving me God. Because the first time I cried out without bargaining with God, I wound up in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I ain't had a drink since. And that, I don't have to tell you, it's a miracle. I want to close out with a poem that I just love here. Frankie Rice, who many of you have heard many times, shares this as, as he closes out, and he does it from memory. I hadn't been sober as long as he has, but God bless him. I want to use this, and it's entitled Which Place, and I love this thing. It said, I dreamed one night I passed away and left this world behind. I started down that lonesome trail some of my friends to find. I came to a signboard on the trail, the directions it did tell. It said, keep right to go to heaven and turn left to go to hell. Well, I hadn't been too good on earth, just a hopeless booze and rake, and I knew there at the crossroads the path I'd have to take. So I started on the rocky path that leads to Satan's place, and I shook within, not knowing just what I'd have to face. Old Satan met me at the gate, and he said, What's your name, my friend? And I said, I'm just old sober Bob that's come to a sad end. He glanced through some yellow files. He said, You made a mistake, I fear. You're listed as an alcoholic, and you don't really belong down here. I said, well, I'm looking for my friends, and a smile stole over his face. He says, if your friends are alcoholics, they're in the other place. So I went back the way I came to the crossroads I did see, and I turned right to heaven as happy as I could be. St. Peter smiled and said, come on in for you. I have a birth. You're an alcoholic. You've been through hell on earth. I saw old Bud and old Pete and Bill and a friend called Nell, and brother, I was happy that they too had not gone to hell. So brothers and sisters, all take warning. Learn something from my trip. You got a place in heaven if you try hard not to slip. 
If someone tempts you with a drink when you're not feeling well, just tell him you're going to heaven and he can go to hell. 